Rock and roll is the topic for this episode of HodgePod. Mick Smith, the doctor of digital, joined me as we talked about Ian Hunter, the former lead singer of the rock band Mott the Hoople. And we also talk about Hunter's years after leaving the band. Mott the Hoople's top song was All the Young Dudes, which came out in the early 1970s. Mick Smith's book is called Ian Hunter on Track. And Hunter is now 84 and still making music these days. So if you like rock and roll, as we talk a little bit rock and roll, Mick Smith, the doctor of digital, joined me here on HodgePod. So sit back and listen as we talk Ian Hunter and Mott the Hoople and his book, Ian Hunter on Track. Dr. Digital, thank you so much for joining my podcast, HodgePod. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rob. And I'm going to say to all the Monta Hoople fans out there, they'll catch the reference all the way from Memphis. Thanks, Rob, for having me. That's right. Yeah, all the way from Memphis. Uh, I had to listen to that song. I, I mean, I uh, I am I love rock and roll. I love the '60s. I love the '70s, the '80s, the '90s. But all the way from Memphis, that is a real catchy tune. We'll talk about that a little bit later as well. But uh, first of all, um, let's talk about the group Monta Hoople because. Uh, I had to do a little research. I like doing research for my episodes. And uh, they were a group that came out in the late 60s, early 70s. So why don't you explain a little bit about uh, Mott the Hoople and uh, why else you're on the podcast today? Because I'm really looking forward to it. Sure. It's Ian Hunter, but that's the guy from Mott the Hoople. So they started out in 1969, and they weren't sure if they were going to keep this guy, Ian Hunter, or not. But the producer, Guy Steven, said, yep, we want this guy. And then after a while, maybe the band said, well, okay, he's okay. And maybe they wanted him gone. But in any case, they stuck together for four (laughs) years from 1969 on. And some albums through Island Records. Up and down, they had a great stage act. I think that's what most people would say. And I did see them, so I could say, yes, I'm one of those people I saw them. But they never had the breakaway hit. And so they were a great live act, and they just couldn't break through. And that was really the issue with Mott the Hoople. And then I think it was really great because Ian then went on to him by himself. And I think he's just a phenomenal songwriter. So that's why I really got him interested in him. And I had other bands at the time. One was Creedence Clearwater Revival, and they were going through their breakups. Like, I've got to find another favorite band, and I also <laughs> happened to see Mott the Hoople at the time. There, uh, that is a uh, uh, a great band from the early seventies, and we'll talk about uh, their marquee song, their great song. More about that. Ian Hunter, he is eighty four years old. Is that correct? That is correct. And I say, you know, just like he says in his songs, because listen to his songs, he's talking about his own biography. It's almost like an autobiography. He said he was washed up in one of his songs, Defiance, was washed up at 30, and here I am 50 years later. Still going (laughs) strong. I say he's 84 years young, and we got Defiance Part 1 that was released in April of this year. But not surprisingly, he is still not done. He is working on Defiance Part 2 as we speak. So I'm looking forward to that as well. It's interesting when uh, just in the past couple of weeks, Jimmy Buffett passed away, Gary Wright passed away. And I I, it was shocked when uh, he found out he was 80. I can't believe that song came out almost Dreamweaver almost 50 years ago. And then Steve Harwell of uh, Smash Mouth passed away. But one th- good thing about music is you can always listen when they're long gone. You can always listen to the music, and it's like a stamp in time when we listen to their songs. But it's incredible, yeah. like all these rock stars, you know, like in the last couple of weeks, or in, and Jimmy Buffett have just you know, passed away. It's incredible. And he's outlasted a lot of them. I think yeah. that's kind of the unusual thing, right? So, I mean, uh, he keeps going, and that's what he keeps saying. He's going to let us know when he's done, and my goodness, he's in- not done yet. So 84 years young. I said, yeah, inspirational. Yeah. And I, you know, I just saw something the other day, the Rolling Stones are coming out with an album in October. And I, I think what keeps him young and keeps him going, that those musicians is uh, making the music and keep touring and things like that. It's quite extraordinary. So, well, their marquee song was all the young dudes. And it's a really catchy song. Yeah. It came out. When did it come out? Well, here's this backstory on it because it's it's actually pretty interesting. When I had said that they had a very difficult time finding that 
breakout hit. And they had done a great live act. People went to see them and really rabid fans. But they got to a point in 1972 where they were playing in a gas tank, of all things, in Switzerland. And they said, basically, this is the pit. I mean, we're done. <laughs> if we've been slogging along and playing live and we just can't get anywhere. So actually, the band broke up. And the bass player over in Watts called up David Bowie asking him, hey, you know, do you need a bass player? And David, being a fan, which they didn't know at the time, said, oh, no, you, you can't break up. I'm a fan. Come over the flat. I got a song for you. And then eventually the entire band went over. And as Ian has recorded and said about this story, he said they played it. And he said, I can't believe he's giving this song to us. Well, he was a fan. And first they played Suffragette City, which is a good song. But Ian said, no, we can't do that. We need something that is really classic and something which is iconic. And obviously all the young dudes is. And it was a great, there's actually a recording where Bowie has the lead vocal as the guide vocal. And then Ian comes in because Ian contributed the rap at the end. And I think that really makes the song. So it is an iconic song. And that's what was the breakthrough and then maybe put a little bit more pressure on Hunter to say, okay, you got the breakthrough, now keep it up. And then there were some other hits that came along and, you know, Roll Away to Stone, all the, all the way from Memphis, Honolulu Boogie, and some other songs as well. You know, that song, when you look back on it, uh, in 2021, Rolling Stone magazine ranked all the young dudes in 166 in the list of 500 greatest songs of all time. So that is a great feat for uh, Mott the Hoople. And Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has it as one of the 500 songs that shape rock and roll. So it doesn't matter if you have 10 hits or one hit, but they got that one hit and they have definitely had their niche or their uh, feel into the fans of rock and roll. And I think that's really the case. And when you hear Ian live, because he hasn't been recorded, hasn't been live since 2019, but when he plays live, see, he always has the good sense to play that song. And that's kind of how they end the show. And it's very, <laughs> you know, iconic and people are singing along. And it's, yeah, it's a great feeling because you get caught up in the crowd, but it is such a great song. And it is so much of a 70s song. So if you remember there and you like that, you're just, you know, you're kind of like at the top of it. I tell people at the top of their game, I say, what's the worst thing about an Ian Hunter concert? And here's my answer they end and <laughs> the way they end is with all the young dudes. It's like, it's a great way to go out. You Absolutely. can't top it. Absolutely. And uh, I've listened to the song lots of times. And I'm trying to think now that you said David Bowie wrote the song. Um, I think there's a lot of David Bowie in that song. It sounds like Ziggy, uh, you know, some of his other songs like Ziggy Stardust, it has that feel to it to me. But, you know, when I listen to the song, the first half of the song, this is just me, sounds like the kinks. And then the second half, when they do the chorus or they do the back with the vocals, is sounds like the Beatles. So it sounds a little kinks and a little Beatles to me. Am I far off on that? Or? Yeah, I think there's something about the sort of English and British invasion. I'm saying, speaking as a younger person, you know, remembering the Beatles and all the bands that came over, the Who, the Kinks, the Stones and everybody else. I say, yes. I used to think these people, they must be from Mars. You know, what they said, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Now it looks, you know, by hindsight, obviously, they're not from Mars. They're only from England. So we're pretty close in a lot of ways. But yeah, I definitely think that there is that 70s influence and also the British invasion of all the, the Beatles, the Who, and what have you. And I think that's what was so exciting about Bowie. He was able to capture all that. And along the lines, Ian Hunter wrote a song called Dandy about David Bowie. And I think, you know, again, it's a great song because it has that timeless quality to it from the 1970s. And yet it sounds very contemporary at the same time. So I think having that sort of long range view of seeing the early rock and rollers and then being in rock in the 70s and thereafter, I think it sort of captures it. Again, it's as notion that if you want to pick one song like Rolling Stone attempts to do top 500 or what have you, it's just one of those songs that you would pick out and say, yes, that is really exemplary of that particular period. I agree wholeheartedly. So um, so did you write a book? I did, yes. And I hope it's a contribution because there are some really terrific work that's out there. Campbell Devine has got a two-volume biography, which is phenomenal. And also Adrian Perkins has done a lot of yeoman's work over the years chronicling a lot of these things. But I think there's a place for it. It's called Ian Hunter on Track for Sonic Bond Publishing. And what I've done is it's the first 
book that takes every single song and every single album that Ian Hunter has ever released in his solo career and says something about it. So there's a little bit of introspection. There's a little bit of, well, here's the backstory. Here's what happened. Here are the stories they have. This is what happened in the studio or anything that I could find. And I, it's the first book that I think has a contribution because no one has ever done that. And, you know, the first one out there, maybe there'll be more. That's in some uh, really intense research uh, to hit every song. How long did it take you to get this book done? Because I'm always fascinated by authors when they do books, how long it takes them. I've had authors on my podcast. It's taken from two years to 12 years to write a book. So how long did it take you? Well, it's taken me almost 50 years. No, I'm just kidding. So <laughs> I'm just saying it's when I first started listening to Mott the Hoople and Ian Hunter and Psalm Live. But seriously, I think when I actually got serious about writing it, because I've been looking these things up over the years, I contacted the publisher and I said, well, do you know that Defiance Part 1 is coming out? Wouldn't it be a great time to release a book about all of Ian Hunter's solo songs? And fortunately, he agreed and I said, yes, I'd like to be that person. So a lot of the things I had done, so I'm kind of joking that it's over several decades, but I've looked up a lot of things. I'm one of those people, you know, I've read, read the liner notes. I was in broadcasting at one time, and I was the guy who said, oh, yeah, that was a bass player was this guy. And, yeah, he used to be in that band. So I was really interested in his lyrics. And he's a phenomenal lyricist. So songwriting has always been the attraction of listening to Ian Hunter's music. And I thought, well, okay, who else would be better to – write this book when I've already looked up <laughs> a lot of these things and then wondered about them. And so in a sense, it's, it's kind of a personal story and there are the aspect of, well, if you've taken a hobby that you've been doing for a number of years, well, why not put it in one place and hopefully other people can enjoy it as well. Wow. So you did, uh, you did talk to him about this book that you wrote? Well, I've had an occasion to meet him. I certainly wouldn't say like he knows me, but gotcha. he's definitely kind of a down-to-earth type of person, and I actually wrote a novel that he was generous enough to say, quote, lyrics from it, and it's a novel that has a personal story to it called Burning America in the Best Interest of the Children, and it was a difficult time in my life, and Hunter said when I asked him, I said, well, what do you think about me quoting from your lyrics, because it was a difficult time and got me through it, and he said, yeah, I guess I'm the person you should ask, so I said, go ahead, <laughs> and it's out there. And I've mentioned it to him from time to time, and I've been occasion I've had him sign and autograph things of that nature. So I have met him. I think he's a really interesting guy. Down to earth, you know, if you're a polite person and you're sitting around and waiting after a gig, I've had him sign a number of things and chit-chatted with him a little bit. One of the best stories, I think, was close to home. I was only about 20 minutes from one of the gigs. I saw him in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. There's a number of people standing around him, I swear. It's like about 15 minutes, 20 minutes, maybe he just was talking to me. I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty <laughs> awesome, right? And I'm like, I'm just having a, a normal, ordinary conversation with someone that I have followed for a very long time. And I really appreciate it because he's been very generous about his time and his music and his lyrics. And I think sort of that generosity comes across because he's a down to earth, a very approachable, approachable person. But people said this back in the day with Mata Hoople. Apparently the clash were big fans of Mata Hoople and traveled all over England following Mata Hoople. Wow. And they invited him backstage. They, you know, got, I'm really interested in the rock and roll lifestyle. And Joey Elliott from Def Leppard has said the same thing. So, I mean, if you contact this person in some way and you obviously realize this is a normal, ordinary human being, but he's got talent and you tell him that, I, I think he, he appreciates that. So I think it was a good conversations that I've had with him. And I really enjoy the fact that he autographed some really special items for me as well. That's awesome. You know, you mentioned Def Leppard and The Clash. Definitely Mott the Hoople had an influence on them. And I think after like groups in, in years later, they'll become, uh, they'll become like a fraternity. So I'm sure Jeff Leppard and Clash and probably other groups have really got to know Ian Hunter and uh, they've really gotten to be able to, you know, feel like a fraternity. I think that's pretty neat. You know, generations of different rock groups, genres. I think that's pretty, I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah, and I think if you take a look at Defiance Part 1, this is definitely where you see this because you just can't believe the number of first-rate musicians who are actually on that album. And I think the only way you do that is you earn the respect of your fellow musicians. For example, on one of the songs, 
there's a guy that was from Liverpool and he was one of the mop tops. And I said, you know, if you get Ringo Starr on your record, that's quite an achievement. So Ringo plays on one of the songs. Wow. And there are other people like Slash. There's Joe Elliott. I mean, there's just Jeff Beck. I mean, Taylor Hawkins. The list, the list goes on and on. And you're saying, my gosh, why would all of these people jump on this and be a part of it? And I think exactly what you're saying is the fact that they know that this is an individual who's been around for a very long time. I think of Ian Hunter as sort of the Lifetime Achievement Award of rock and roll because he's been around for so long, saw the early rockers like Jerry Lee Lewis, the governor, Little Richard, people like that. And then he said, you know what, I'm going to do everything I can to get into music. And certainly that's what he's done for a very long time. And I think other musicians respect him. Even on the stage, I see this because he's formed the rant band around 2000, 2001. And seeing these younger guys and their admiration for him musically, I think it just comes across on stage. And I think that's what comes across in his concerts. He's always been the person that said, you have a, he has a stage presence, and going back to the very first time I saw him, I go, yeah, the guy just, he has this presence that he commands attention, and he always would say the people who inspired him, such as Jerry Lee Lewis, that's where he got it from. Wow. And so, yeah, it's carrying on the tradition. That is incredible. So uh, you were uh academia before you wrote this book, and uh, have you switched careers? Well, I think, um, yeah, if I... If I Make it rich and famous, then yeah, definitely <laughs> switch career. But uh, I have the novel that's out, Burning America. This is the second book to be released on Ian Hunter. And I have some other projects. So I have some other things that I'm also writing in this Burning America series. And I'll do some other things as a recovering academic, as I call it. So I've published a lot and written a lot. But it's a different kind of writing, definitely, right? So, I mean, if you're trying to be a rock writer, it's been definitely different than an academic writer. So I always tell people, well, look, I know what a subject is. I know what a verb is, but when you're trying to write in a completely different style for fans, it is something that is an acquired talent. And it's something you have to work on because it's not necessarily what I did academically, but I did write a lot and I did publish it quite a bit in academia. Interesting. So what do you think like sets Ian Hunter apart from other songwriters of his generation and uh, what do you think is his greatest contribution to rock music? Because you've mentioned his album that's coming out, but uh, he's had influence with other people, musicians playing on his album. So we'll, how would you go about uh, thinking about that? Yeah, I think when I think of, let's say, what rock is. So rock and roll is the early people like Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Buddy Holly, Sam Cooke, all of those folks. Elvis Presley. Find Elvis Presley. Yeah, you could mention Elvis. I guess you could throw him in there too. What I see that's different about songwriting is the fact that what he has done, in my mind, has broken the classic rock mold. And I say this because let's think of all the great bands from the classic rock era. So it might be the Stones, the Who, the Beatles, and all those people that come to mind. On the other hand, Mont the Hoople nor Ian Hunter has not had the number number of hits and has not had as much airplay. On the other hand, his songwriting, which I find really incredible, has actually, to me, had gotten better. And he's got a very unusual sense in that there hasn't been, I'm going to go out as a nostalgia act. No, I'm going to keep on writing and I'm still going to be very creative with it. And that's why I'm saying, I think he broke the mold of a classic rock songwriter because he is the one who has very compelling rock lyrics He's got a terrific producer in Andy York. He's assisted by the maestro, James Mastro, and he's got a solid rock band with the Rant Band. And with you have people like Stephen Holly, you've got Dennis DeBreezy, you've got Paul Page on bass. He's got a great band. And it, to me, that's what rock is all about. You don't look backwards. It's always breaking the mold. It's always moving forward. And that's what he's been able to do without having like just becoming a nostalgia act and go out on stage and play the same old hits over and over again. Think about rock and roll, you know, that, uh, rock and roll bands that came out in the eighties or the nineties, they have their, they have their hits and they never really come out with any albums. And it's just like, yeah, like they just go out and play the old hits and they don't come out with anything new. And yet Ian Hunter, he's coming out with new music. I find that, uh, pretty interesting that, uh, some music acts, just bands just don't come out with new stuff or whatnot. I mean, maybe they just, they just want to go out and tour. Maybe they're burnt out, but uh, 
it's interesting that, you know, like uh, the Rolling Stones are coming out with an album. Um, they've been together 60 years. They're coming out with an album in October, and uh, they just keep writing and writing and writing. And it's uh, fresh when these older acts just come out with new songs. Yes, and I think that's what I'm trying to say. When I look at a person that, of course, you know, I like the Stones just as much as any other rock fan, right? I mean, <laughs> they have a classic sound. They have good songwriter, Jagger Richards. I mean, there's all those things that are true about them. You know, on the other hand, I think they don't have the evolution. They pretty much have their sound and they're making money. And Got it. it's the same thing. But again, do they push the limits? Are they coming out? Would anybody argue they have better music than they did, say, in the late 60s and their peak in the early 70s? No, probably not. And that's what I find that is so different about Ian Hunter, he doesn't look backward. He's still trying to write something very different, and I would argue his late, later albums are actually better than what he was doing earlier because he just keeps pushing himself. And the styles that he does, he's got strings attached, which is then with strings, obviously, and like, well, why is a person who's a rock guy going out with a band <laughs> that's classically musicians? Well, I mean, it's something that's different. It's not something which everybody does. And then he comes out with a live album after that, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And it's almost the same exact set list, but he goes out with this standard rock band. I mean, who does that? Because you certainly could be turning off fans. Let's say they like the strings version, or I like that, but then they don't like the rock version or vice versa. But here's a guy who keeps reinventing himself. So, I mean, again, like a Bowie or somebody else, like the Beatles, they kept pushing themselves and they kept being very creative. And that's what I think is very different about him and his songwriting. Yeah. I love the Beatles, the stones, but my all time favorite band is Van Halen. I love Van Halen. I love everything that they did. They transcended their personality on stage, their music. They had two different singers that they were very successful with. Mm -hmm. And I also think, you know, the, their influence as they went on to, they broke up like grunge bands had, Huge uh, influences with Van Halen, a lot of other bands, you know, the heavy metal bands from the 80s. But what bands, you mentioned uh, The Clash and Def Leppard earlier, what other influence uh, Ian Hunter and Mott the Hoople have for other rock bands, you know, further on? Well, I think there's some have said, and this is what I agree with, if you listen to Brain Capers, which was one of the island records by Martha Hoople, some have said this is like the first punk record ever made. And I go, well, of course it's arguable, just like saying what's the first rock and roll record. You know, people go back and forth on an issue like that. But yes, if you listen to that, it's almost chaotic, and yet it's really it's a great album. It's a great <laughs> rock album. It's a statement, and that statement is, okay, it's just like rock and roll, there's a lot of energy and there's a bit of chaos in there. And when I listen to that, even by hindsight, I go, you know, probably the punks and some have said that album really had that much more of an influence on them because they showed there's sort of the in your face thing with rock. Like, OK, if you can do it, so can I. And it had that sort of defiance and arrogance. I said, get up there and play. <laughs> and, you know, when I listen to it, I go, yeah, I can see that because I think it held it held together with all of the songs on that one album. And then when you see the influence of where rock was going, I think he was a little bit ahead of his time. And I would say that with some of his other music, All-American Alien Boy, the second album, I just love this album. I thought it was phenomenal when it first came out. But Ian and himself has said it was commercial suicide. It was. But again, he was ahead of his time. He's writing about very mature subjects and very mature things that let's say your typical person who's like a 19 or 20 year old male, like I was at one time, well, they're not really thinking that deep yet. I think when you look back, you go, yeah, but rock artists are supposed to address social issues because they certainly had before Bob Dylan certainly had the Beatles right. had the Rolling Stones did. I mean, other people in my era when I was growing up in the sixties and seventies, I always talk about the kinds of things that came out when Crosby, Stills, and Nash released Ohio, and actually Mappa Hoople played Ohio on stage. They were influenced by it, but that was almost unheard of. They went into the studio, they wrote it, they recorded it, and it was released within two days. That was unheard of, mm -hmm. but it was about the Kent State shootings, and it is that sort of aspect of get that thing out there, and anybody can do it, but you want to address the issues that people are thinking about. And that's why I say when it comes to Hunter, I just feel like he's ahead of his time. 
it takes the fans and the, the rock critics the time to catch up with what he has been doing and where he's pushing himself. That is uh, extraordinary. You know, if we could talk about all the young dudes, I, I love that song. It's uh, just under three and a half minutes. It ha- songs that can put you in a good mood. Um, for me, I believe, you know, if you're driving down the road, you've had a bad day and you hear a song that you like, that can turn your mood in an instant. And that's one of those songs that it's just like a, a good time song. I can vision like people just sitting around in a in a bar drinking and and then singing all the young dudes and having a good time. I think that I mean that, that's the kind of song that I think it is. It's just a really fun, good song. Yep, it's one of those things. So I wasn't necessarily in a bar, but my <laughs> high school buddies and I were listening to it, and that's when I we were the first ones. Actually, when the first time I saw Mapuapu was with some high school buddies. A guy had a, a car, and so we could get to the concert. And I go, yeah, because it's one of those songs that does remind you of an era and a time, and you can hang out with your buddies and listen to it <laughs> and enjoy it and listen to it a thousand times and it still sounds fresh. It still sounds new. And it's still one of the songs that captures that time in that particular era. Yeah. I think when you listen to a song uh, from way back when, or, you know, you think you can put a time and a place to where exactly you were when you heard that song. I think that, mm-hmm. that, that helps memory. And what I also think too, music is, you know, when you hear a song, you can sing the lyrics. I think it helps with memory, too. I love it because, you know, you, you know when, like, the certain points of the song come, you know, the lyrics, you know, when the drums, and you just know I think that's pretty neat as well. So um, so if you had to choose a song from Ian Hunter's discography as your personal favorite, which one would it be and why? Well, you know, it's, it's a good question, and it's an interesting one. Because here's a very unusual song that almost no one talks about. And it's a song that is so personal and so introspective, you very rarely will see a rock artist talk about something which is that personal and that much of what they think inside. But he wrote a song in the late, late 90s, didn't record it until 2008. And the statement was, it's going to be the last song on my last album. So a lot of us as fans were saying, oh, what is he saying? Like late 90s, he's done. He's going to say that's it and hang it up. But no, it's a song called, called Salvation. And I thought that's really unusual. By no means is this an individual who would be traditionally religious in any way. But he wrote a song and it would, didn't fit on the album. And he's actually got two versions. But it's a very spiritual track. And it's something which is really personal. He's saying something to the effect that obviously from the title, I'm trying to do the best I can. And he says, I hope I'm not been too naughty because it's all about the wind up. It's like, okay, it's getting to that point in life where you're starting to think about what's coming after. <laughs> it actually turns into, I said, you know, it sounds like a biblical verse in Philippians 2.12. There's actually saying where we talk about trying to work out our salvation and spiritual maturity. And who would write a song like that? And if I went back to songs like, again, you asked me one song, but I'm thinking all these songs that came to mind, I Wish I Was Your Mother was one of those first early songs. I mean, who writes a song like that? <laughs> I mean, what rock artist would? Just the title alone. So I Wish I Was Your Mother, Salvation. Like, what is this guy talking about? But here's kind of his impact. I said, you know, he's a guy who's got his antennas up and he's listening to the universe and doing the best he can. I go, that's what we all do. So finally, we had this 30 set box set, 30 CD box set that came out stranded in reality. And it's on there and it's the last track on the last studio type album. But of course, he went on to have released Defiance Part One. And I said, he's coming out with Defiance Part Two. So thank goodness, Ian, not done yet. Keep at it, brother. Wow, that's that's extraordinary. Unlocking the secrets behind every lyric riff and melody could you give us a sneak peek into one of these secrets that you uncovered while writing the book yeah i think it comes back to what i had mentioned this unusual and very weighty thing that came out it actually took them three years to put together stranded in reality the box set and what i find that's really interesting about it among other things great music things we haven't heard before but what's fascinating about it is the fact that what I say, some of the best songs that he's ever written is on an album and a 30 box, 30 CD box set that people really haven't heard. So I think to myself, well, what is he telling us? I mean, the stuff is so good and so different. 
but he wrote some of the songs and didn't release them on a regular recorded album or a regular CD. But there it is, and hopefully people can listen to it. And so when you listen and read about the book, I'm hoping that people would benefit from it because these are not the most heard songs and they're not the most well-known well-known songs. In fact, nobody's heard them until this came out. And it's a song like one that said, nobody's perfect. He and his wife have been together for a long time. They're a beautiful couple. And he writes, he's saying this is one of the best love songs that he's ever written about his wife. I'm like, it's on an album that hardly anybody has ever heard. I mean, very mm. unusual, but it's well worth listening to. He's got another song, Testosterone, which is like one of the best rock songs that I've heard from him. And again, it wasn't on a regular release, but it's on the Stranded in Reality box set. So it's very expensive. I get it. But if people haven't got that 30 box set, maybe some of the songs that you don't know, I can tell you a little bit, a little bit about and you start listening to other stuff and maybe you want to get into it and listen to it yourself. Yeah. And I like the fact that, you know, uh, the, the, the groups, they, they have their, their key hits, their number one hits, their popular hits, but there's a lot of songs that they don't play. They never did play in the radio and they don't play. Now you have to go to your phone. There are a lot of groups that have a lot of great songs that never got airplay. And, you know, you're mentioning these songs here. It's, there's more than just, you know, the number one hits that are coming out. So, so Ian Hunter is known for his charismatic performances. So um, how did you catch that rock star charisma in your writing to make readers feel like, you know, we're front row attendees at a concert? Well, I'll give you an example. I said about, okay, I'm definitely an academic type of writing, and that's been my training. I go, well, now, what rock fan is going to pick up something that's an academic treatise with a lot of footnotes and a lot of references and sources? Nobody. So... I think what I've been able to do is to write an engaging and entertaining style and definitely from a rock fans background myself. So I took some of the research ability and the sort of the things that I would do to be very exhaustive and find every possible source that I could get to, which is what an academic does, but put all those together in a way that is much more engaging and much more entertaining. And I would like people to feel as though they've been at a concert themselves because I've been fortunate enough to see Ian Hunter dozens of times, and I would say there's virtually nothing like that. Now, hopefully the writing style will come across that way. That's a person who's done the research, done everything they can to collect in one place, in one source, every song that he's ever written in his solo career, every release, and make some sort of comment about what he has been saying. Interesting. So, like, when you've seen all these concerts... Did he go with different set lists or do you remember some of the set lists that he had? And uh, did he pretty much run the same set list or did he do variations of all the shows that you've seen? Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that when he's been interviewed, he's been asked like, what do you do and how do you put together a set list? So <laughs> when I've seen him a number of times he says, well, it's something to the effect that, well, I put in some of the old songs. People want to hear that. Then I put songs that somewhere in the middle and anywhere throughout my career and then some of the new songs. So what you get is that each tour is very different. So, for example, he's had acoustic tours. He's had a couple of concerts that recorded live, I said, with strings. Mm -hmm. So he may have the same songs. But what I think is so fascinating about him as a musician is the fact that you're not going to hear the same arrangements. So you may be hearing the same song, but technically speaking, it's in a very different style. And I think this is what keeps it fresh. It keeps it every concert. When I said, when people say, what are you, what are you crazy? You've seen Ian Hunter three nights in a row in New York City? Yes. Did you see Ian Hunter three nights in a row in L.A. at different venues? Yes. <laughs> Did you see him six times in a month in New England? Yes. Well, why would you go to keep going for one after the other? I said, because each venue and each arrangement of each place on the different tours has been different from the last one. In other words, it keeps it fresh. And for a set list, of course, like every musician will tell you, you got have a combination of fast and slow rec songs and things like that to keep the pace of the actual concert on track. And I think that's what I find that when you find really good selection of fast and slow songs and break it up, you know, he'll be the lead singer at the very middle of the stage and he comes over and plays keyboards for a while. I mean, it just has enough variation and each venue seems different and the sound is different at each, each time I've heard him, I thought it's just, not the same thing. So it doesn't get boring. In other words, it's not boring at all. 
I love it because there's some items online you can look up setlist.com and you could look up concerts that you know you saw 30 years ago and see what the set list was for that concert. I think that's pretty neat. And how do groups? I don't know if you know the answer. How do groups come with like to the set list? How do they get to the set list? Does the group pick it or does the managers pick of the bands? Do you happen to know? Because I find that pretty cool. Like how they come up with the set list. Yeah, I think I know enough about following Ian Hunter where I can say, and that's that combination because he is the primary songwriter on almost everything he's done. And he doesn't really collaborate as much as maybe some other artists. And it's his band, let's say, so he forms the Rant Band. And it's very interesting to see on one CD, it's the Rant Band and they get credit. And then there's other times where it's just Ian Hunter or he's even got one, Ian Hunter's Dirty Laundry. So you're seeing there's a combination of really him as an artist. And sometimes he's got musicians that he feels comfortable with and work with. And of course, you know, going back to some of the older days, he had Mick Ronson, who was Bowie's guitarist for about Mm. 20 years or so. And they collaborated quite a bit. And then when you had concerts like those, well, then some of the songs were Mick Ronson songs and some of them were Ian Hunter. So it's a combination of all of those things. But I think the show is what I see. And when I mention a lot of people have noticed about Hunter, he does have a very strong stage presence. And I think people identify that really early on. And I found that throughout his career that he does become the center and he does have the presence that's a commanding presence, regardless of the musicians, regardless of what songs are. He just has that presence that is associated with rock and roll. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, too, that David Bowie liked liked uh, Mott the Hoople. And it's it's great that, you know, pretty much gave that song to them and, you know, stardom came for them. And who knows what would happen if that never, you know, transpired. I think that's a great story of uh, one David Bowie helping out a, a group. And what, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I think it's when I go back to Hunter's biographies, I, what we know about him as a, a person, he kind of reminds me in a way of my dad because my dad was a factory worker. And this is what he and Hunter has done. He did sort of these grunge jobs and he wasn't fit for it, didn't like it, wanted to be in music. And so he'd play his music, go to Germany, go join a band, be there for a while, go back to work, get fired, go back to music. <laughs> it was kind of like a... He says he's been fired something like 40 or 50 times because here's a guy that really dedicated himself to music and should have always been in music, but having that dedication and that persistence to keep at it when nobody really said, you know, gee, you have a great career as a musician. Nobody was saying that he had to follow his own way and his own path. And by doing that, eventually, you know, things start to happen. It's just like anything where I'd say if a person was disciplined and persistent Mm -hmm. and you know, you have talent regardless of what everybody else is telling you, because he did have some issues with his family and other people saying, you're never going to make it. Like he says, I can major in reverse psychology because people are saying (laughs) you'll be nothing. And he said, no, I'm going to be somebody. And he turned out he was, but it wasn't easy. It just took a long time. There was a guy that started playing somewhere in the late fifties and sort of the semi pro type bands in England. He used to play at air force clubs and other things. So a lot of cover band type stuff, but eventually he started getting into songwriting himself, wrote his first song that got publishing credit in 1967, two years before Mott the Hoople and being persistent and keep trying it. And in Mott the Hoople, he and Mick Rouse, the original guitarist wrote songs together. After a while, Hunter took more of a, a writing role and then eventually I think it kind of leads to this fact that why he eventually went out on his own has been a solo songwriter since 1975. Wow. You know, you also uh, mentioned the discipline and the persistence. One thing I find out about the groups in the seventies, the sixties, and even the eighties, they were persistent like Van Halen. They would play five gigs a night. They'd play high school. They play weddings. They would play anything they could within their circle of influence in, you know, Dina, California, and they just hone their skills. And it's just really, you know, it's a tribute to the bands that do, and like Ian Hunter, that really persist, do the hard work and you see the fruits of their labor. It, it That's a discipline that uh, probably a lot of bands just gave up on. You know, I think a lot of people are saying inspired or they think you have talent, but you end up, you're saying, living in Southern California for a long time, I said, you know, it's not just talent alone because 
everybody in Southern California. I was a younger person in twenties and thirties and lived in Southern Cal. That's how I got to see Mata Hoople actually. But everybody is a songwriter or a musician or an actor or an actress. I'd say I'm the only person in Southern California who doesn't do any of things. I just <laughs> wanted to work. Right. But the thing is, it's not just talent, it's talent and something else. And that something else is the discipline to your craft and the persistence to keep at it. When everybody is telling you, you know, you're not going to make it and you're a nobody say, no, I am somebody and I am going to make it. And it's not easy, but I'm going to be one of those people who are eventually going to break through. And I think this is what this great story about Ian Hunter is that mm-hmm. everybody was against him. His family is against him. Nobody thought he was going to amount to anything. He said, no, you know what? I'm going to show you. And I think there's, that's a very admirable quality. What was there, uh, John? Or was it glam rock? Not the hoople. Yeah. But at the time, I think it was one of those things they got on the board there or got on the the bandwagon because they're technically, I wouldn't never say that they were a glam band, but there's certainly a period there when they associated themselves with Bowie, who definitely was <laughs> glam that they did. So there are the big platform boots and yes, there were all the styles and what have you, but it probably actually was one of the things that led to the breakup of Mata Hoople. Mick Ralphs didn't really care for it. If you listen to his guitar style, he's obviously a very heavily influenced by the blues and very basic rock and roll didn't really care for the glam movement. And I think that was one of the things that said he's probably not going to fit in the band long-term. And of course, that's what he left to join Bad Company. And the other side of it, the backstory is the fact that he started writing songs that simply wouldn't fit Ian Hunter's vocal range and it didn't really work out. So with these songs, he went to Bad Company and then kind of leading to the breakup of the band itself because you had Hunter who was saying, well, I really wanted somebody like that, a good co-writer and a phenomenal guitarist like Mick Rouse. But I think that eventually is what got them kind of to break up. And they weren't really glam, but of course, you know, at the time and the association with Bowie, that's what everybody <laughs> thought they were. So they got thrown in that. And, you know, uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, vocal range, which is, is pretty fascinating of itself. So, uh, you know, going to Bad Company, that was a different uh, different band. So that seemed to work out for them. Yeah, there's no question. And so, I mean... When you look back and I'd say, well, you know, there's a certain amount of nostalgia because I like the original band and when they first were recorded on the island and went through all that. So there is a period like that that I enjoyed, but I can see that it's not necessarily something that's going to last forever. And I mean, this is what pop music is all about. I mean, it's uh, kind of superficial and people change and people grow up and what have you. But I think then there's a period there where I think it was almost inevitable. And if you have a person like a hunter who is a really good songwriter, I think that also becomes a bit of attention because then at the time he felt a great deal of pressure. So he had a breakdown at the time and that's really what convinced him to say, you know, I got to get out of the band here because I'm under so much pressure, but that, which is relieved of the fact that you can go out on your own and sort of it's doing your own thing and not necessarily have to run it by a democratically run band like does you like the song and do you want to do this no he was just going to do himself and do things in his own way and i think that's what kind of led to the breakup of mata Hoople anyway you know it's incredible when you see tensions in bands and the success they have it's incredible that they break up or they just don't want to be around with each other or they take a break and they get away from each other it's it's really incredible even with all this this success the money and the tension is just incredible that it would make a band break up or go off to another another band. Don't you find that pretty uh, interesting in that in that realm as far as you know leaving bands? I do, and it's one of those things where I said when I was in broadcasting many moons ago, I was the guy who kept reading all the liner notes and wanted to know where everybody was and who they played with and what bands and who played bass on what record. I mean, some of the things by looking back, we didn't know who was on the white album, for example, Beatles came out and then you find out later on, well, that was Eric Clapton on guitar. Well, it sounded like him, but he doesn't get the credit on the record itself. Mm-hmm. But I do think that's what happened with bands such as the Beatles. I mean, there's a combination that people say, well, why did they eventually break up? Well, you know, they had been together for a very long time. They were older. They started having families There's relationships. There's children. I mean, you know, it's just not something which is going to last. The incredible thing about the Beatles is that they stayed so creative and so much 
as a popular band for such a really long time. If you say, let's say the first response that people really had in 1963 to about 1970, that's actually a really long time for a pop band to be together and to be at the, really the top of their craft. But yes, uh, indeed, they, uh, they and others don't really stay together. The Stones have been more the same. You know, they have some of the back musicians and some others have come and gone, but there's a core there. And that's what I think whoever is the core of the band keeps the name going. Some of them are faceless. I mean, some of the rock bands I think of, uh, you know, some of them, I, I wouldn't even know who they are. So <laughs> it's the matter of who's writing the song. And almost always it's the lead singer too, because that's the most identifiable thing, right? If you hear a Mick Jagger song, you obviously know it's Mick Jagger and nobody else. Correct. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> he really could do anything that he wanted in any band, but he chose to be and remains with the stones. And I think that's what comes down to a lot of guitarists, let's say, is, you know, they're very identifiable because of the style they they play. And just uh, one last question. Do you think rock and roll is dead? And if it is, do you think it'll make a comeback or do you still think rock and roll's alive? I'm always fascinated by whether you don't hear, obviously bands have gotten older, but do you think rock is not dead, but uh Slow down a little bit, or do you think it'll make a comeback? I'm going to quote the who. Rock is dead, long live rock. So, <laughs> that's right, yes. Know, I, right? So I think they, they kind of nailed it. I think that's what I think is the best way to phrase it. Yes, rock is dead, because they mean in a sense, yes, it is dead. It's not as popular as it had been, and it's not the leading style of music anymore. But on the other hand, it's not dead, because there's so many recordings, and there's so around who appreciate what they do and eventually you hear some younger people go back and i played some of the stuff that i listen to and younger people who have never heard it start saying gee that's really different that's really fresh i really like it i go i know <laughs> you know rock is dead but you know long live rock because it does have that appeal that basic style is more or less the same but I think there are the quality artists who have persisted and will continue that medium and so they will be around or the recordings will be around just like if people have gone on to their, their heavenly reward. So you can still listen to Jim Morrison. You can still listen to Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Brian Jones, et cetera. But their music kind of lives on. It's kind of a cliche. But yes, if it's good music and you enjoy it, well, then it's, you know, rock is going to be around for quite a long time. In the 70s, it was just uh, vinyl records. And that was it in the early 70s. Then eight track tapes came out. Now we have music at our fingertips and we can play any genre decade anything you want and it's quite awesome because you really don't hear a lot of the songs the classic rock songs that much really on radio you know you have your probably generic 400 songs and you won't hear anything else and i think it's great that we have these little devices our phones that we can play whatever we want what's your thoughts on that yeah i i agree with it that's one of the things that i were looking back say the history of rock in the 1980s, which was a down period for Ian Hunter and I think for rock and roll, because it's not to say there weren't great songs and weren't really good bands that there were, but I think just in comparison to what preceded the late fifties, the sixties to the seventies, there is a really prime time and that was it. And on the other hand, some other things happen. So when Ian Hunter writes a song like Apathy 83, that's what he's talking about, that there was a difference between what was happening and the corporates got in there and the corporate types got in there, people who know nothing about music, and it was a decline in music. And that's just something that has happened because of some external factors, you know, but again, this is something which just happens to be it's an impact from the outside that no one really thought of at the time but looking back you certainly can see it it's still alive and it's still the classic artist and it's still the people who are pushing themselves that you're going to notice and you're going to remember and like you say it's streaming now so you can listen to anything from any period and look at those deep cuts the things that people have not necessarily heard of but there's some really terrific songs. Again, if I was thinking of Ian Hunter, some of his later albums are the, the best one, Rant, Shrunken Heads, Man Overboard, When I'm President, Fingers Crossed. I mean, these are his more recent releases like Defiance. I'm like, this is some of the best things he's ever released. So that idea of rock and rock lives on, that's what I see it when I see that sort of quality of music and the pushing towards creativity. About your book again? 
sure. You bet. So the doctor of digital, Mick Smith, Mick like Jagger, except he makes more money. What is the name of it? It is Ian Hunter on track for Sonic Bond Publishing. So if anybody's interested, it is going to be coming out according to the publisher in January. So this, you got an exclusive. This is the first time I've said it publicly anywhere. So January of 2024, it'll be coming out. If you want to get a hold of me, get, contact me at the doctor of digital at pm.me, the doctor of digital at pm.me. I'll put you on the list. The pre-release list is coming up now. We're getting ready for January and the release. So one other thing I forgot to talk about, and I jotted it down. Ian Stewart wrote a song, which I found while I was researching, Once Bitten, Twice Shy in 1975. It was uh, his debut solo album, and it gained number 14 on the UK singles chart. And that song was covered by none other than uh, heavy metal group Great White in 1989. So, has written some songs like Once Bitten, Twice Shy, Cleveland Rocks. And you speak about an influence that, yes, because people have really appreciated the song and done well with it. I think he's got a better rocking version, but somebody else can record it. And they also did have a big hit with it as well. So, yeah, if you listen to good music and you like it, boy, get out there in the studio and record it yourself and you may have a hit with it. All right, Dr. Digital, Nick Smith, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You bet. Appreciate the time all the way from Memphis and also where Ian Hunter's record is. Defiance Part 1 is, of all things, Sun Records Studio. And I'm not kidding about that. I wanted to thank Mick Smith, the doctor of digital, to come on my podcast. Thoroughly enjoyed talking to him about Ian Hunter and Mata Hoople and Ian Hunter's influence on rock and roll. Look for more episodes coming up on HodgePod. I'm Rob Fredette. You can hear all the episodes on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, the Odyssey app, Amazon, and any other podcast platform. And I've got some great episodes coming up in the next few weeks, and I look forward to bringing those to you. So again, thanks.